Um, I don't know if you ever stop and think about like life, like you actually take a moment and think about the world and your place in it. Like I, I tend to be a little bit more reflective this time of year, but, but do you ever just walk outside and look around and think about how this planet, this dirt ball that we call earth is spinning at roughly a thousand miles per hour right now, or, or that we're hurtling through space at a cool 68,000 miles an hour, or, or that we're traveling around a giant ball of fire that's about a million times bigger than the earth in terms of its volume, and yet somehow we're positioned just perfectly in relationship to it, that if we were a little bit closer, we would be fried, just torched. If we were a little bit farther away, we would be completely frozen and lifeless. The truth is that most of the time we get up and every day is just kind of an ordinary day. But trust me, if you take the time to stop and look around, it's not just another day. I I mean, I know we got bigger things to think about, like our life and life seems to be kind of an endless flow of ordinary and routine and mundane moments. And most of the time we're just doing our best to sort of struggle through and carve out a life for us and our families. I mean, even this time of year, it can be hard to focus on the bigger picture, to focus on a deeper, more beautiful life when you got grades to make and bills to pay and a a boss to keep happy and a marriage to invest in and kids to raise and cars to maintain and presents to buy and parties to plan. I, I believe with all my heart that you were born to live an incredible life, an incredible adventure of faith and life and partnership with the God who created you, that you were created to, with, with a divine destiny, that you were called to fulfill a great mission, that you were designed for a unique purpose in your life. But it, it is really hard to focus on your life and your story when you're just busy trying to come up with interesting adventures and stories for your stupid elf on the shelf, right? Like, have you ever had that moment where you get in bed and you remember you didn't plan, you, like you didn't do something for the elf? Like, that is one reason why we've just decided we are never doing that. I do not need another thing to try to do for my kids at Christmas time. But still, I I can't help it. I absolutely love Christmas. But it can be kind of a tricky season because there's so many different stories that are interwoven into the experience, right? A few months ago, Hansi, my wife, she started this homeschool group on Fridays to do field trips together. And and she started it because she kind of recognized that there's a whole bunch of families more than normal uh, homeschooling their kids. And many of them are feeling kind of overwhelmed and isolated and lost. And so she started the group simply to provide some community and some connection for other moms and other kids and kind of have some stuff they could do together. And so this last Friday, we actually, as a church, we sponsor some of the events, the events that, um, that this group puts on. And so we hosted this Christmas party for all of these homeschool families. And we had over 80 kids show up and we were over in the senior center and it was bonkers, man. It was just wall-to-wall kids and it was awesome. And, and Santa was there and he was taking pictures with the kids and talking with the kids. And we have, um, we have a, a little guy, Kelton, who's six, and he was the one kid that stood over here with his hands in his pocket and just only participated when he could yell. He didn't want to sing, but he could yell. Uh, and, and so, but he was just 
all over Santa on Friday. Like he, he just hung out with them and was talking to them and the kids were all done and Santa was just sort of hanging out before he left and, and, and Kelton had a million questions for him. And, and at one point he asked him when his birthday is and how old he was. And Santa, without missing a beat, told him that he was 1,741 years old, which just kind of blew his mind. And, and, and so that night, like putting him to bed, he asked like, well, if he's that old, why isn't he in the Bible? And, and so... Um, I was like, that's a guilty bed, kid. Stop asking me stupid questions like that. No, but so we, fit a few, we spent a few minutes kind of talking about it and unwinding how and why Santa's not part of the Christmas story and why it's all about Jesus. And it was such a good conversation with him. But I think that's one of the things that can happen to us is that the stories about Jesus, some of the stories that we're about to read, they just sort of get folded into the, the folklore of the season, of the fabric of the myths and the fables that, are just part of this time of year then, and they become kind of disconnected from any part of history or reality. It's easy to forget that all of the stories were about real people in real time, living real lives in real history. And so last week we began to look together at this moment, this description about Jesus that happened 700 years before he was born. Uh, This guy, Isaiah, actually begins to tell us who he would be and what he would be like. And he gives us some descriptions, some names, some nicknames uh, uh, that Jesus would be given. And so I want to, that's where I want to start. So Isaiah chapter nine, verse six says this. It says, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. See, what, what Isaiah is describing is this moment when, not just when Jesus would come to earth, not just when a baby would be born, but when heaven would come crashing into earth. But, but I think one of the challenges for us is when we read these words is that they can move us and they're beautiful and poetic, but they're just sort of surreal. They, they don't seem like they really have any grounding in real life. They're, like they're describing something idealistic for sure, but something that's almost kind of just magical and sort of fanciful because these names really are amazing, right? I mean, they're, they're perfect descriptions of if there was a God, who we would need him to be. But then we look around and we see the state of the world and it's hard to kind of reconcile like a, a, a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and a prince of peace with what we see around the world. So last week we talked about how Jesus was the, is the wonderful counselor about how he, he doesn't just want to be an advisor. He doesn't want to just be on the board of directors of your life. He actually wants to be the source of wisdom and truth and understanding for your life. But then there's this second way that Isaiah describes him. He describes him as the mighty God. If I'm being honest, one of, one of the, this, this is one of the four names that he's given. This one is the hardest for me. I mean, I, Don't get me wrong, it's the one that actually gives me the most hope. I mean, because when I look at the world and when I look at myself and I look at my own life, I feel, and I hope maybe you feel this too, I feel deep in my gut just how much I need the help of a really big God, a really powerful God. Because the truth is, if Jesus is God, but he's powerless to help us in any real way, then what's the point? At the same time, It's also hard to imagine a helpless newborn as the mighty God. A a mighty God who's a conquering king? Absolutely. But an infant born to a teenage mom? Not so much. 
I mean, the, the name, the words mighty God literally translated means warrior. It means champion God. And it's not that I don't believe that that's who he is, but bringing those two things together with this baby in this manger can be a challenge. Is it possible that the creator could be laying there in that cradle? But there he is, the baby, 100% human, 100% God. I don't know what images come to your mind when you hear the phrase mighty God, but I think of strength and power and miracles and transcendence and fire coming from heaven and parting of the sea and raising the dead. I mean, if there was gonna be a sign that God had showed up, surely it would be something spectacular like that, right? After all, God has all of those things on his resume. Just read the Old Testament. But that's not how he chose to express his power. That's not how he chose to step into human history and bring his might to bear on the world. So Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, Isaiah says this. He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 800 years later, one of Jesus's disciples and followers named Matthew, he begins to sit down and write about the life of Jesus and the events of his life. And he says this in Matthew chapter one, verse 18 to 23, he says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about, that his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had, him, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." And Matthew makes this observation. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, which we just read, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Isaiah says it, Matthew says it, that God himself gives us a sign, but he doesn't split the sky. It's not thunder and lightning. He doesn't shake the earth. He doesn't come and in all of his glory and power and splendor to destroy his enemies, he actually shows up to love them. He came as a baby not to come and conquer us, but to come and save us. So um, the last few weeks, I, I've actually been reading a little, a little bit about and listening uh, to different podcasts about artificial intelligence. And the conversation around it is really fascinating to me. And so we, we talked a little bit about it last week about how in 1996, a computer that was built by IBM called Deep Blue, uh, nobody thought it was possible, but for the first time ever, that computer beat the reigning international, the world international champion for the first time in chess uh, named Gary Kasparov. Now, of course, in the last 25 years, the computers that we've developed and the artificial intelligence that we've built, it dwarfs the capabilities of Deep Blue. But after Deep Blue kind of proved that computers could beat humans at chess, something as com complex as chess, that they needed a new goal. And, and so there's this ancient game called Go. This, it's this ancient Chinese game called Go. And, and it's a strategy game similar to chess, only it's 
um, much more complex. I mean, the board is twice, more than twice the size of the board of chess. And so uh, in chess, they, they calculated that at any one time, there's, we talked a little bit about this last week, there's 250 different board positions and moves that are possible at any one moment. But in the game of Go, that number is exponentially higher. It's so large, in fact, that it's unimaginable. They, they actually calculate it to be that it's 250 to the 150th power, that that's how many different moves and board positions are available in, at any one time. In fact, we've yet to be able to build a computer that's capable of processing the number of moves that are available in this game, the way that Deep Blue was able to process the, all the possible moves in the game of chess. But here's where it gets interesting, because my wife is dozing off talking about this. She's like, last night, she's like, it all sounds great, except all that stupid part about artificial intelligence. But here's where it gets interesting. Even with that being the case, where we can't build a computer that can figure out all the, figure the game out and figure out all the moves, even when the possibilities were too big for the computer to be able to analyze it all, what began to happen is the computers were still able to beat the humans. And what they found was that the artificial intelligence got so good at analyzing and predicting what the human player would do that it could always ensure that the computer would win. See, the AI was learning the game, but they discovered that, that its real focus became learning and predicting the moves that the human would make. I mean, just think about that for a second. We are creating an artificial intelligence that knows how to make sure that your last choice ends in you losing, which is kind of a little bit scary and creepy. Cyberdyne systems, anybody? I mean, Arnold warned us about this years ago. But here's what I want you to know. God is the exact opposite. See, if we can actually create an artificial intelligence that's so complex and so dynamic that it creates an algorithm that is able to intuit and predict every decision and every choice that you're making. And so that it keeps reorganizing the game board and reshaping the universe that you're playing in. So eventually you run out of choices that would end in your success where you're left with only one choice and that choice ends in your defeat. How much more can God, no matter how many times you make a bad choice or a wrong choice or a stupid choice, no matter how many times you failed, no matter how dark it gets in life, no matter how hopeless it seems that you can never get yourself into a corner where God doesn't have one more move that would lead to your success, to your victory, to your healing, to your life, to your wholeness. See, I want you to know this morning that he's the wonderful counselor, but he's also the mighty God and he's got one more move. He always has one more move. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't take, uh, it doesn't take that much intelligence to make sure that I lose. Like I do that kind of by myself. Like we do that sort of by ourselves. Life has thrown a lot of crappy stuff at me, but if I'm being honest, most of the time, the mess that I find myself in is not something that somebody else did to me. It's something that I've done to myself. It's always me that leaves me in the position where the only choice I have leads to my defeat. But that's the beauty of Christmas. That's why Jesus came. He came for you and for me. He knows you're gonna mess up. He knows you're gonna blow it. He knows you're imperfect. He knows you're flawed and fragile and sinful. He knows how broken and painful life is. But he's the mighty God and he's got one more move than you every single day time so that when you're at the end of yourself, he has one more move to bring you to the beginning of your new self. When life is dark and lonely, he has one more move to bring light and hope and life. When you've reached a dead end and you can't see a way out, much less a way forward, 
he has one more move to make a way where there seems to be no way. I, I think one of the tensions that we're constantly wrestling with in our life, if you're a follower of Jesus, is that when we choose to live a small life, it actually leaves no room for a really big God. When we choose to live a life that's all about us and our intentions and our selfishness and our ends and our means, if we never actually move beyond that life, it's really hard for us to have enough room for this incredible, big, powerful, eternal, mighty God. Because the truth is we want God's power to come in and change the world, right? We want God to show up and change the people around us. We want God to come in with a demonstration of his power and just dunk on all the people that we hate. That's the mighty God that we want, right? We, we want God to change our lives. We just don't want him to change us. The problem is that there isn't a single change that God can bring to your life if you don't allow him to begin to change you first. And that's the really good news this morning. That just like all the descendants of David that Isaiah was talking about. And no matter how messy, no matter how broken, no matter how many bad moves you've made, they're no match for Jesus, the mighty God. Even if you're an overachiever and you've screwed up, not just in one area of your life, but all the areas of your life. Even if somehow you've managed to mess up your past, present, and future, I want you to know that no matter how good you are at making bad choices and bad moves, you're no match for the moves that God can make in your life. No matter how much you mess up your life, you'll never, ever, ever outsmart the mighty God. He's got one more move for your healing, one more move for your hope, one more move for your success, one more move for your forgiveness, one more move for your restoration. See, Christmas is a declaration that God refuses to leave you defeated. Romans chapter eight, verse 28. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. And what he's telling us is that Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, that he sees you, that he knows you, and that he's out in front of you working on your behalf. That, that if we can build an artificial intelligence with an algorithm capable of figuring out you and predicting your choices, that the God who shaped you and formed you, the one who knows you, the one who knows your thoughts and attitudes and intentions, that he knows and sees you, he knows what you're doing, he knows where you're headed, and as life begins to unfold, no matter what it throws at you, no matter what choice you make, that he's out in front of you working on your behalf and he's reorganizing the game board, he's reshaping your universe, setting you up for the incredible life that he created you for. See, when the God of the universe dwells in your life, you are never powerless. You may feel stuck. You may feel trapped. There may be a part or a place of your life that seems doomed or dead, but God is not done. He has not abandoned you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the mighty God, and he refuses to leave you defeated. But here's the thing. It's not magic which is, I think, what some of us want. I think we've seen too many movies. We've watched Aladdin one too many times. We want God to show up and be like, boom, I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. And you're welcome, because now that song will be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. But so often, we want a genie, not Jesus. But he's not a magical genie. It's actually better than that. He's God 
stepping into human history, taking on flesh, becoming one of us. He's the mighty God in human form. By the way, we're, we're so limited in our perspective, right? Because we read the, the story of Joseph and Mary, right? And the situation that Joseph felt trapped in, the situation that he was trying to escape, the situation that he was looking for the exit, the situation where he was trying to plan on how do I distance myself from Mary? How do I get out of this? That, that was actually the thing that God had orchestrated and set up for the most important and significant part of his life. But he couldn't see it. See, the beauty of the story of the coming of Jesus is that God is this massive, big, eternal, powerful, mighty God who's on his throne and he is over and above all of it. But he's also this present and in our midst God. He's in the middle of all of it with us. And that would be incredible and would be enough in and of itself, but he doesn't stop there that God is not just in our midst, that he's on our side. He's not just with us, he's for us. That the creator of the universe, that he's this mighty God, he's also this personal, intimate, loving savior who has leveraged all of his power and all of his might and all of his strength and all of his grace and all of his goodness and all of his mercy and all of his power and life for the good of you and your life. Isaiah describes it this way in chapter 30, verse 18. He says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you that he will rise up and show you compassion. I love that. See, if you've ever doubted God's intention towards you, if somebody's ever communicated that God has some other intention towards you, they were lying to you because this is God's heart. This is his desire for you that he longs to be gracious to you. This is what makes Jesus different from everyone and everything else is that Jesus uses his power to empower us, not to overpower us. In John chapter 13, the, the, one of the followers of, of Jesus, the disciple John, he actually describes this moment where Jesus now knows that God has given everything, given him power over everything and everyone. And John says in John chapter 13, verse three, that Jesus knew that God had placed everything under his power that he had come from God and he was going to God. Can you imagine knowing that? What would you do the moment that it dawns on you that you, owe, you have power over everyone and everything? <laughs> I mean, I know what I'd do. I, I got some people I want to flex on. I got some apologies that are owed. I, I don't need to hurt anybody, but I do want to scare some people. And the very next verse almost seems completely out of place because John says when Jesus knew that, that he got up from the table and he took, out, took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he filled a water basin and he took the time and he went and he washed all of his disciples' feet. The first thing he did when he stepped into the full realization that he had power over everything and everyone was to begin to serve and love other people. See, we think of power as the fuel to conquer and control, but Jesus used his power as the fuel to sacrifice and to serve. He's the savior of all because he's the servant of all. Earlier, we read from Matthew chapter one where he describes how the birth of Jesus came about 
and the conversation that occurred between God and Joseph where God had to like clue Joseph in like, hey, the thing that's happening, it's me, man. She wasn't lying to you. At the end of the story, Matthew says this in verse 24. He says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife. What a great picture that he woke up. I I don't think that it's just describing that he woke up from his physical sleep, although that's what it's saying. But when he woke up from sleep, he woke up to what was going on in his life. He woke up to the reality of what God was doing right in front of him. And then he did what God said. He woke up and he did what God said. See, that's the thing. For all of his might, for all of his power, there's one thing that God will not do for you. He won't choose for you. So often we want God to show up in the way that we want, but if he doesn't, we start looking for the exit. God, you said, and why didn't, how come, and this is, and you, I thought if I went to church and I gave, we start bargaining, where, where are you, are you paying attention? I mean, think about Joseph for a moment. Even with the story and the momentum of his ancestors and all their terrible choices, because all of the people that came between King David and Joseph when Jesus was born, they all made a bunch of terrible choices. Even in the midst of all of that, God found a way. None of it derailed what God wanted to do in his life. The only thing that could have kept him from stepping into the life that God created him for was him. But he woke up and he did what God told him. He woke up and he listened and he obeyed. And I think that's probably a great place for us to sort of engage Christmas and our own faith and our own souls and our own hearts this morning. See, I, I think that God is having a conversation with you and some of us just aren't aware. I know that he's at work all over around your life. The question is, can we see it? Are we awake? So for some of us, maybe that's where we're at this morning is we just need to wake up to the reality that the baby in the manger is not just a baby, that it's God taking on flesh. It's heaven crashing into earth. It's the son of God coming for us. And we wake up to that reality. We listen. We step into faith and step into his light and his love and his life. Some of us, we're just so busy this time of year. There's so much noise. We need to step back and listen to what God is saying. Because here's the thing, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, God is in an ongoing conversation with you. The question is, are you listening? Have you taken the time to say, God, what what is it that you want to do in my life? Because I promise you, he's got stuff that he wants to say to you about your marriage and about you as a parent and about your kids and about your life and your neighbors and the people he wants to love through you at your job. And he, he's got all kinds of things that he's trying to orchestrate and move you into and speak to you about. The question is, are we listening? 
And will we do what he says? See, no matter where you're at this morning, the good news of Christmas is that God refuses to leave you defeated. He refuses to leave you stuck. That he is speaking, that he's come in all of his might and all of his power. And he's leveraged it all for you. But you have to choose. You have to wake up. You have to listen. You have to do what he says. Let's pray together.